Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben Ryman. We're talking uh, all things Tourette syndrome and tick disorders and everything in between uh, with Dr. Douglas Woods. Uh, Doug, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me on today, Ben. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk about this. Uh, I really like, um, uh, you know, getting into kind of areas that are, you know, a little different from what we kind of usually talk about from the in, in sort of day-to-day ABA kind of autism talk. And I, I like hearing about folks that are kind of specializing in sort of unique areas. And certainly uh, Tourette's is, is one of those. And I have had very little experience working with Tourette's. I think I've known one individual in my entire life that you know, uh, that uh, I knew presented with Tourette's. There may be lots of other folks out there that I didn't know about um, and certainly did not know that uh, uh, Tourette's uh, could be treated with uh, behavioral interventions. And uh, it sounds like um, um, the world didn't know that many years ago. And I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, about sort of how, how we kind of got to behavior interventions. Before we get into that, I always like to hear a bit of an origin story of folks, kind of how you got into sort of the behavior therapy field. So I'd love to sort of hear the story about how you kind of found yourself in behavior therapy and eventually found yourself working with uh, uh, folks with Tourette's. Sure. Um, you know, I came out of an undergraduate psychology program, a pretty traditional undergraduate psychology program at Ohio University. I knew I wanted to go into uh, clinical psychology, or at least that's what I thought at the time. And I was looking around and I got into a master's program at North Dakota State University, which had a, a good behavior therapy master's program. I wasn't particularly interested in behavior therapy per se, but I thought the program looked good. Uh, so I went up there to Fargo and uh, happened to uh, have as my mentor, Ray Miltenberger, who was um, teaching our behavior therapy class at the time. And it really made a lot of sense to me. So I started working with Ray. And that's actually where I started to get into uh, the Tourette's field. Ray had done mm. some work in the 80s uh, looking at behavior therapy for Tourette's. Mm. And uh, I started doing some research with him. And, and I've been doing it ever since, actually. Uh, through Ray, I got really into behavior analysis and uh, went to get my PhD at Western Michigan University, where I worked with uh, Wayne Fuquay mm. and had classes from Dick Malott, Jack Michael, and, and you know uh, the, the whole crew. Uh, so mm -hmm. I really got steeped in behavior analysis at the time, although I was in a cl the clinical program there. Um, I left uh, my uh, program at Western Michigan to complete my pre-doctoral internship, which is, which is required in clinical psychology programs. And I, I mm -hmm. ended up going to Boys Town to work with uh, Pat Fryman. And so... Oh, wow. Turns out I ended up being mentored by a couple past presidents of, of the Association for Behavior Analysis. Um, and uh, from there, I went to uh, my first academic job uh, at um, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where mm -hmm. I was colleagues with Jay Moore and Alan Barron, uh, uh, both really well-known behavior analysts. And Jay himself was a president of ABBA as well. So I've had kind of a history of, of working in and around uh the, the field of behavior analysis, although, like I said, I'm a clinical psychologist by training. Right on. Well, a, a lot of, a lot of, I think a lot of uh, the listeners here are probably, um, you know, kind of from the, the newer generation of behavior analysis. Um, it tends to be with, I think, with a lot of these podcasts. Um, and, 
And so certainly introducing the UN Tourette's will be big, but a lot of folks I think have uh, have been doing some um, sort of, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of fanboying, fangirling um, around Pat Fryman, a lot of his work. Uh, I think I think a lot of that's in, in thanks to some of the work uh, that, um, um, uh, you know, Ryan, Ryan O'Donnell's was doing, uh, kind of filming, filming uh, all, all, all the work that he does down in Boys Town and really kind of bringing that to the mainstream. Curious just uh, what your experience was like down in Boys Town. What were you doing? What were you doing there? Well, I was doing my pre-doctoral internship and I was one of, I think, seven or eight interns at the time for that year. And Pat was our, our supervisor. Mm. And I'd known Pat for a few years before that. And Pat's, Pat's a great mentor and he still is a great mentor to me. Um, mm. I'll still call him. We'll talk occasionally just about cases mm. that come up or we just check in to see how things are going. I was just mm. down there a few, uh, about two or three years ago, right before the pandemic to uh, mm. celebrate their, their uh, anniversary of that internship. And when I was there, I mean, it's important to understand that Boys Town itself, the, the facility itself, given how strongly it adopts behavioral technologies in its mm-hmm. approach to, to dealing with kids, is the treatment. Um, Boys mm-hmm. Town's physical space and interactions with the kids is therapeutic. So there really, um, as a general principle, isn't a need for the, the an individual psychologist. We were brought in mm-hmm. as interns to help. Uh, problem solve when the typical system of thera- therapeutic living didn't work or mm. wasn't working as well as it could. So we were really kind of brought in for the special cases and troubleshooting uh, where see. kids were having problems within the therapeutic system itself. Mm. Um, it was a, a wonderful year uh, that we spent there. And I, I would encourage anybody who has an interest in, in seeing what behavior analysis can look like in real life, if you will, and, mm-hmm. and how it can make an impact on kids in such a positive way to go to Boys Town and just check it out. It is a beautiful place and a beautiful use of behavioral technology for improving the lives of those kids. Oh, really interesting. Really cool. Right on. So kind of getting into kind of the the Tourette's piece. So before we kind of talk about sort of the your journey and, and, and many years of kind of research in the area and um, and 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 some of the big milestones that you and your colleagues have kind of achieved. I think just get an idea of 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 what Tourette's actually is. Number one, um, and then two, I I I I just from kind of looking at some of your papers, it looks like maybe there's Tourette's, but then there's also sort of just tick disorders. So, so what are ticks? What is Tourette's? And sure. can, can you have ticks and not have Tourette's? Uh, yes, you can. But the distinction is relatively arbitrary. So mm. ticks, let's start with what are ticks. Ticks are rapid, sure. recurrent, non-rhythmic motor movements or vocalizations. Little bits of, of movement or sound you make that happen repetitively and recurrently. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of times they're things like eye blinking or nose twitching or mouth stretching or neck jerking. Those would be common motor tics. Um, and then there are common vocal tics, little vocal habits people get into, like sniffing or throat clearing over and over again. Um, in the media, a tic that gets a lot of attention is the shouting out obscene words. That's kind of what people think mm-hmm. of when they think of Tourette's. That's actually a really rare symptom. It happens in mm. maybe 10 to 15% of kids who actually have oh, wow. Tourette's. Um, but in any case, the, the tics themselves are just movements or sounds that kind of happen over and over again that are viewed as uncontrollable. And I say viewed because there's some nuance to that. 
Um, and there are different types of disorders that are made up of these tics. So we call persistent motor or persistent vocal tic disorder. Um, uh, we, we have that as motor tics or vocal tics, but not both that have happened for mm. at least 12 months. We have uh, transient tic disorder or um, I can't think of the, the new DSM uh, term for it. Um, I'm blanking on it right now, but uh, no transient, transient tic disorder is basically when you have motor tics or vocal tic disorder uh, that has been present for less than a year. So mm. when you have motor tics or vocal tics, but, uh, or both that have been present for a, uh, less than a year, that's called uh, um, transient or provisional tic mm. disorder. That's ah. the word for it. Um, and then you have Tourette's, Tourette's disorder, sometimes called Tourette's syndrome, where you have multiple motor tics and at least one vocal tic that have been present for at least a year. So Ooh. you can see the distinction between these is relatively arbitrary. If you have a bunch of motor tics for at least a year, but no vocal tic, then you have persistent motor tic, not Tourette's mm. syndrome. If you start sniffing, then you have Tourette's syndrome. <laughs> yes. um, if you have multiple motor tics and three vocal tics for 364 days, you have provisional tic disorder. Tomorrow, you'll have Tourette's syndrome mm. because you've had them for at least a year. So right. you can see there's a relatively arbitrary nature to some of these diagnoses. Clinically, yeah. we don't really distinguish between them too, too much. Um, you know, Tourette's, kids with Tourette's uh, diagnoses tend to have a little bit more severe comorbidities, perhaps. Uh, mm -hmm. they, also, they often have a little bit more ADHD and OCD and so on. Um, but we don't really get too hung up on the differences from a behavioral therapy standpoint, get too hung up on the differences between Good. Tourette's and the other disorders. I see. I see. So now, now, I mean, you've already kind of enlightened me a bit with some of these examples. Now I'm just taking my own personal experience. I clear my throat a lot. Um, and, uh, like I, like I'm, I'm resisting the urge to do it as we speak. Um, and I know there's, you know, some things I can do medically, you know, I can, I can drink some water and, that'll sort of lubricate the, the area that's dry or whatever, or apparently I can hum that will maybe help make the sort of urge go away. But I've been clearing my throat, you know, multiple times a day <laughs> to my wife's dismay um, <laughs> uh, for, for many years. Do, do I have tics? Potentially. Um, you could have a chronic vocal tic. Um, mm -hmm. That wouldn't be uncommon. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have about one, about probably about one percent of the population has chronic vocal tics or chronic mm -hmm. motor tics. Mm -hmm. uh, another 0.6 to 0.8 percent of the population mm -hmm. has full-blown Tourette's. So you're looking at about mm -hmm. roughly two percent of the population who has a, you know tics mm -hmm. that last for at least a year. Doesn't necessarily just because you have a repetitive coughing uh, mm -hmm. uh, sound doesn't necessarily mean you have a tic. I mean, there could be. Um, you know, some kind of allergic thing going on. There could be, you know, throat damage. There could be, I mean, a host of different things that could be happening. Uh, but sure, it could be a tick. No, and of course, I'm not looking for you to diagnose me over over a podcast, and that may not even be your your role as a diagnostician. <laughs> but but what what is it? What is it that's going to make this a tick versus me just clearing my throat a lot because it's dry? Um, well, it's interesting. It's pretty gray in there. I mean, one of the things yeah. we want to do is to rule out other explanations. 
So that's right. why with children with with ticks, often before they get a Tourette diagnosis or a tick diagnosis, they've gone through a lot of other medical professionals. Mm. So, for example, ticks often start in the head or face, and they usually start around the ages of two to four. Um, mm. And often they start with um, an eye blinking or a nose scrunching kind of mm -hmm. thing. Um, so if you're a parent and you see your child blinking their eyes hard and frequently, you bring your child to the pediatrician and they say, oh, we better get your child's eyes checked. Maybe there's something mm. going on with the eyes. So go to the eye doctor and everything's fine. So you rule out that. And then you say, well, maybe, you know, then maybe your child starts to sniff a little bit and you say, well, maybe there's some allergies going on. So they get allergy tested and they're fine. And so at some point you're left with no other explanation other than, oh, this must be a tick. Um, and that's how a lot of people with tick disorders end up getting diagnosed. Um, so, yeah. And, and who and who is sort of the professional that gives a, a ticks or a Tourette's diagnosis? Well, that, and that's one of the reasons, you know, you, you talked about you didn't know there were any behavior therapy treatments for Tourette's because behavior therapy in psychology, behavior analysis is not the, the first home for these children who, mm -hmm. who end up getting diagnosed. A lot of times they'll start with pediatricians. And the mm -hmm. pediatricians, once they've ruled out other possibilities, then they usually will go to psychiatry or neuro most often neurology mm -hmm. um, because Tourette's is also classified as a movement disorder. Mm -hmm. um, so you will go to a neurologist and the neurologist will end up um, diagnosing them often. Um, and then, you know, it, then it's up to the neurologist to know what treatments exist for it. And given they're, that they're in the medical world, often that's the treatment they think of first because that's what they've learned in their training. Right. And so, and so, because so then neuro, neurology piece, and I remember reading that a few times, it's a neurological disorder. And again, I know you're not a neurologist and, and you're only going to be speaking to sort of, you know, what, what you've read or what you've been told. But uh, so are there then sort of brain related things going on? Do they do sort of brain scans or, or they have, have they just sort of shown sort of certain areas light up when you have a tick? Like what makes it a neurological disorder? Sure. So um, we, there aren't any diagnostic brain scans for having mm. Tourette's. We, we, okay. we don't have that. You can't do an EEG and find Tourette's or anything like right. that. Um, it's all done by observation. But uh, we do know that there are parts of the brain that are different in kids with Tourette's. We know there's a genetic impact of, of Tourette's. We know there's a strong mm. genetic influence of, of having tics. If you have a child, if you have OCD or ADHD or tics, your chance of having a kid with Tourette's goes up dramatically. Um, mm. So we know there are genetic linkages there. Um, we, we know that the problem in Tourette's probably is based in the uh, area of the brain called the basal ganglia, which mm -hmm. is the subcortical structure that it regulates um, movement. So it's, it's movement inhibition and release. And it also has, interestingly enough, to, a lot to do with reinforcement learning. So uh, what we do know, there, there's a part of the uh, basal ganglia called the striatum. And we know that parts of the striatum volumetrically are smaller in kids with Tourette's than in, in non-Tourette control kids. In other words, they have a little bit less of that part of the brain. Um, and that part of the brain is actually responsible for inhibiting uh, unwanted movements. And so that part of the brain that doesn't, that doesn't there's not as much of and may not work as well, um, uh, get, ends up leading to the children having problems inhibiting these unwanted movements and those things come out as ticks. 
And so that, that's really where we think a lot of the problems in, in Tourette's lie. Mm. And now, and you say it's sort of diagnosed quite most often in sort of young children. Uh, can, can older folks sort of get a diagnosis later? Like, is, is there a late onset or is it, or maybe just sort of recognizing, like, again, going back to sort of myself again, and I'm not sort of uh, itching here to, no pun intended, to kind of go out and um, um, uh, go get a diagnosis right now. But could, could a 47-year-old could a man who's never had a diagnosis get a diagnosis of Tourette's or tic disorder? You, well, technically, probably not, because the diagnostic criteria say onset before the age of 18. Mm. Often, though, um, you know, it, it's not un- impossible for that kind of thing to happen. So sometimes mm. ticks can start at a later onset. Usually there's something, um, there's a, some kind of clear initiating event that, that brought the later onset ticks on. So, for example, maybe they hurt their neck in an accident or something like mm. that. And they've gotten into a, a, a habit, if you will, of stretching their neck. And it looks like a neck jerking tick. So maybe mm. that, that would be mm. the cause, the genesis of the neck jerking tick. Um so usually there's some kind of situation like that for those later onset ticks. Often, though, if you have a person who has a, a tick as an adult, if you actually explore back with them when they were children, mm-hmm. there's probably something back, um, you know, that they did when they were younger that may have gone away for a while, only to yeah. emerge later as an adult. Yeah, no, I'm definitely... <laughs> People are probably giggling a bit. I'm definitely, you know, and I'm my 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 wife always says I'm highly suggestible as well, so this could be part of it. But you know, I I also have ADHD, and I definitely recall this going back to high school. Yeah. So, uh, you know, who knows? It's possible. Um, again, not a not really a, a major deal. And I and I guess one, I guess to get a medical treatment for your your tick or your or your Tourette's. You probably would require a, a, a diagnosis. Uh, yeah, I doubt you'd get treated without some kind of of diagnosis. But where, but whereas, I suppose it could be possible. You know, if I just sort of came to you and you know said, you know, I've got this repetitive thing that won't go away, because you you do behavioral therapy, I could one get behavioral therapy for Tourette's or or tics without having a diagnosis. Correct. I mean, yeah, for sure. It would, yeah. you know, we would treat it the same way. It wouldn't matter right, if the right, diagnostic right. label is attached or not. Gotcha. So before we kind of get into sort of the treatment and what that all kind of looks like, um, kind of want to know, number one, and again, this would be sort of just based on your 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 conversations with folks that, that experience these things. I mean, unless you experience them yourself. What what how do folks sort of describe a tick and 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 sort of you know like what is is there a feeling is there sort of like a, a sort of an urge or an aura that kind of comes beforehand um you know is is there something cuz cuz i i've i've heard of sort of folks sort of doing things like um uh, and maybe and maybe maybe this is just all stories and people don't actually do this, but doing you sort of like hiding their ticks and kind of releasing them later and sort of those sorts of things. Like, how, how does it all work, sort of from a you know from your own sort of perspective? Yeah, so I think it's a good point. One of the things that I think is a surprise to some people is that when we talk about ticks, you know, a lot of people think just of the thing you can see or hear as being the tick, and that that's yeah. clearly a big part of it. But what they miss often is the, the phenomenological internal experience that people with mm. ticks have. Um, 
And so if you were to ask someone, an adult, kids don't have as good as interoceptive abilities as adults mm. still developing. But if you were to ask an adult with Tourette's, do you notice that your tics are coming? Most mm. of them will say, yeah, I do. Mm. I can feel it coming. I can, mm. I, I have an urge, they call it an urge to do it. And, mm. and it's hard for, for people to, who don't have tics to understand what that might be. But sort mm -hmm. of the best way I've seen described or best way I've seen to demonstrate what it might be like to have a tick would be to um, kind of do an exercise like this. If you sit down and open your eyes really wide and stretch mm -hmm. your eyes open and don't blink and hold that for about a minute mm. and just notice what you feel inside, you know, what your body's feeling mm -hmm. and doing, mm -hmm. you'll notice mm -hmm. this kind of pressure an uncomfortable sensation building in your eyes. It's just, mm -hmm. it becomes about all you can think of. Mm -hmm. uh, all of your attention draws to that feeling. And then if you let yourself blink after that minute, you'll notice that your blinks are a little bit different. You'll notice that mm. they're faster, that they're mm. harder, that they're more repetitive, and that they um, gradually take away that, that uncomfortable feeling that was building up mm. behind your eyes. That experience is very similar to what people with Tourette's experience all day long. They have wow. this urge build up. They it, it they build build build, and then they tick, and they get rid of the urge. Brings relief. Mm. Sometimes they have to tick a few times in a row to get rid of it, mm -hmm. and then it mm -hmm. goes away, only to come back again in a few seconds. And mm. it's that repetitive cycle over and over again. And if you think about it from a behavioral standpoint. What it really is, is a constant negative reinforcement uh, loop. It's continuous reinforcement right. with continuous negative reinforcement. So this aversive stimulus shows up, the, the person ticks, the aversive stimulus is decreased. So thereby the thing that decreased it is reinforced, i.e. the tick. And then it happens again and again and again. There are some accounts of people with Tourette's who say, you know, it's not the ticks that are involuntary. The ticks mm. are actually voluntary. I do them to mm. get rid of this urge. And it's the mm. urge that's involuntary, which is a really interesting way to look at it and very consistent with the behavioral model of why ticks mm -hmm. might continue. Yeah, that that's a really good point because because that, that's always been confusing to me, this idea that sort of, and, and, and you've, you've elaborated on it, the, the idea that Ticks or, or ticks or tick disorders are sort of an on involuntary sort of movement or vocal behavior disorder, and yet you constantly hear stories of people saying they're able to control their ticks or they're able to resist or they're able to sort of hold back for a few extra seconds till they can you know you know turn their head or or go go into go into the bathroom and do it or or, or whatever and, and and that always confused me that you could have something involuntary that was controllable so it makes sense that the involuntary piece is this you know is is, is as you describe it the sensation which really you know for a non-scientific term but really sounds like torture uh, for some of these folks it can be until you learn how to react to it in a different way um, and you learn that it doesn't stay around forever um, and I think that's the important thing to keep in mind. And that, and that really talks about some of the behavioral process. And let mm -hmm. me give you another analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So have you ever been uh, sitting in public and suddenly get an itch on a place in your body where you can't scratch given yeah. where you're sitting? Sure. Right. We've all been in that situation. And 
if you focus on it, it gets maddening mm-hmm. to the point where it's all you can think about, mm-hmm. right? But if you just start doing other things, if you engage in other behavior, yep. suddenly you, you, you realize, oh, the itch isn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, that's what we try to do with behavior therapy. We try to teach them instead of going right into the, the operant, the tick, which eliminates the urge. When they notice that urge is present, they need to pause, do something else, get engaged in doing something else, and let that urge do what it's going to do. Mm. Which in most cases, given our biology, is will habituate to it. The urge will just kind of fade away by its own. And thereby, you start breaking that that link between the urge showing up and the tick having to occur in order to release the, the urge to, to produce that negative reinforcement. And when you get good at that practice of doing something else and allowing the urge to go away on its own, you end up with a, a, a different, different operant in the presence of that, of that urge. Mm, very good. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to know the three secret words and enter them at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is tick, T-I-C. So Tourette's, I think Tourette's for many years was only treated medically is that right and so and so what what did that look like and, and sort of how did how did we get from uh i'd really like to hear the story you told me kind of a bit of this paraphrase when 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 we met before uh because i think this would really sort of inspire folks potentially that are, are working in areas where maybe behavior therapy you know currently isn't really all that accepted or you know and 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 and, and you know they're trying to sort of you know fit a as it were, you know, fit fit the, the the square peg into the round hole, um, be, and and really not getting acceptance from their peers and so on and so forth. Um, so, I, I guess, can you give us a bit of a history of how Tourette's was treated for you know you know in, in the early days and kind of how it how it got to be that behavioral treatment was sort of the it has become the the primary you know sort of uh, choice of treatment. Sure, it really is sort of an interesting history. Um, so Tourette itself, the dis- disorder was discovered by a French neurologist named uh, Gide La Tourette. Mm. Uh, and he worked with Charcot, who was the famous neurologist in uh, France. Mm. And uh, Tourette was there in France at the same time as Sigmund Freud. So there's actually a, in the same lab, actually. And so there's actually a very famous picture of Charcot, Tourette, and Freud sitting together in the lab. They were, you know, they were all, Tourette was a big deal in his day. He died very young. So he ended up not getting a lot of the recognition that Freud ended up getting. Mm. Um, but very early on, it was viewed as a medical condition. Um, mm. you know, Tourette, after all, was a neurologist. Um, and, and Freud knew a lot about Tourette's work because they were together. And so, um, you know, a lot of the early treatment was uh, psychoanalytic in nature. Uh, the, the medicines that we would later come to use to treat Tourette's didn't exist. But even Freud viewed what he was doing as a medical intervention, you know, keep in mind for a, for a medical problem, a neurological problem. Mm. And that held for a while until the roughly the 50s, when it became recognized that antipsychotic medications 
could be used to alleviate the symptoms of people with Tourette's. Mm -hmm. So at that point, there, there was a kind of up until the, the advent of antipsychotic medications for the use of Tourette's, um, there was this idea that non-drug treatments could be used to treat Tourette's, but it wasn't what we would call behavior therapy today. It was mm. psychoanalytic treatment and so on. And it ended up creating this very sort of blaming culture that, that um, you know, if a child had Tourette's, it was probably due to some early uh, parenting practices or bad relationships with the mother. Mm. You know, so it, it ended up not the use of non-drug treatments did not have a good reputation in the, in the Tourette community for a long time. Mm-hmm. When, it, when it became clear that uh, antipsychotic medications could work, the, uh, the pendulum swung in a pretty hard way against anything other than medication as a treatment for Tourette's mm. uh, because of a lot of bad treatment they had gotten before the onset of medications. So from about the 50s until 2010, I would say, Pharmacotherapy was the the only acceptable treatment in the medical community for Tourette's. Wow, um, and and that was a pretty strong um, strong push. Now, what what's interesting is um, in the early two thousands, uh, the Tourette Association of America, which was founded by people with Tourette's mm-hmm. um, and parents of, of kids with Tourette's. Uh, really started to get a lot of feedback from their membership. And, their, and the membership was saying things like, you know, um, we don't want to keep putting our kids on these medications if we can help it. Do you mm-hmm. have any other, asking the Tourette Association, do you have any other treatment options for for our children, any non-drug mm-hmm. treatment options? So the parents were really kind of giving rise to this. Mm-hmm. And the Tourette Association said, well, uh, we should try to see what we can do. And so they brought a group of us together um, in 2002, I believe, um, to start to develop uh, this non-drug treatment option for kids with Tourette's. And how could hmm. we get that out there? Now, what's interesting about this is starting in the late 60s, early 70s, there had been kind of this interest in using behavioral procedures for for treating kids with Tourette's. But this came out of the early behavior therapy and the applied behavior analysis world. Hmm. Um and in, in the 70s, 1973, um, uh, at Nathan Azard and Greg Nunn published a seminal paper on a treatment called habit reversal that they mm. developed to treat kids with and adults with tic disorders and other mm. habitual behavior disorders. Um, and there was a, a kind of the subcurrent of research going on in behavioral treatment for tics for 40 years. Right? Mm-hmm. And in 2002, the Tourette Association, but it had never been, that research had never really been accepted by mainstream medicine. It was mm. only published in behavioral journals. It was only, sure. you know, talk to, you know, behavior therapists talking to behavior therapists, and mm-hmm. they were never trying to really communicate with the neurology community and so, um, and, and the psychiatry community. So it was really kind of falling in this, just on deaf ears, I think, mm. in, in, the, mm. in the medical community. In 2002, though, when um, the association asked us to come together and start to develop these non-drug treatment options, they brought together a group of us who knew a lot about Azrin's work and the the activities he had been doing for behavior therapy. So we took Azrin's work on habit reversal and brought in a a lot of functional analysis piece, a a functional Mm. assessment, functional-based intervention work from the applied behavior analysis world, and um, started to create this thing we called the Comprehensive Behavioral Intervention for Ticks. Mm. We also knew that, you know, as opposed to some of the early research methodology that was used in behavior therapy, 
that we had to get um, more intentional about using research methodology that would be acceptable to the medical community because that's mm. who we had to convince. So we, we developed um, and sought funding for from the NIH two large-scale randomized controlled trials comparing mm. our comprehensive behavioral intervention for ticks to a supportive psychotherapy control condition. Um, each of the grants that we got, we, we used one, we got one grant of about $3 million, I believe, uh, mm. to test this treatment in kids and another $3 million grant to test this treatment in adults. And we ran them simultaneously. And in 2010, we published the first paper, which was the outcome study for treatment of kids with Tourette's. Mm. And it got published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, mm. which is exactly what we wanted to have happen. And it, it changed the field almost overnight in terms of how acceptable behavior therapy was viewed in the medical community. Um, we went from something that garnered almost no attention in the medical community within mm -hmm. about three to five years of that paper being published that you know, CBIT or the Comprehensive Behavioral Intervention for Ticks is now recognized as, you know, the first line treatment for kids with Tourette's across the world. Um, so it's been a really fascinating, um, you know, arc to this, to the story. So now, you know, behavior therapy is sort of, even though it's been sitting there since 1973, since Azrin published that first paper, mm -hmm. it only got real traction after we started to um, speak to the people that needed to be spoken to, which were, was the, the, the medical community. That's really cool, and and so, and it makes the kind of tangent a slight bit here, just because there's sort of two pieces there that you you um, uh, you touched on that I think are, are are really important, especially for folks that are sort of trying to. I I, I one thing I love about uh, uh, this work, and and I'm sure you. I have no doubt that your mentorship from Pat Fryman probably was connected to this somewhat as well, because I know when I heard Pat speak once, uh, he really emphasized, and he still does quite a bit, um, uh, you know, the importance of of publishing outside of our, of of, of sort of behavior analysis type journals, like, like stop publishing in Java and, and sort of other journals like that, because it's only behavior, behavior folks that are going to read those and, and, and sort of get anything from it. And so, you know, he would talk about sort of publishing in journals like pediatrics and others like that to, for, for, you know, doing the same kind of work, but publishing in those journals. Um, and then similarly, you talked about sort of, you know, using, uh, you know, a research design that's accepted. And, and I think there's been a lot of talk that, you know, as, as robust as sort of, you know, single subjects designs can be, they're still not really accepted by a lot of fields outside of outside of uh, behavior analysis. So what I'm curious, what, um, what, what, what made you able to publish in the journal, in, the, in, in, in a medical journal? Like what was like, what was the sort of the process there? Like, it seems like that's something that would be, uh, you know, a, a tough, tough to achieve. Um, not really. Really? <laughs> not, okay. Not, and, and what I mean by that huh. is, huh. um, the JAMA is a hard journal to get into. There's mm -hmm. no doubt. It, but I think, you know, hmm. how to put this. Mm -hmm. in, in many ways, they're more pragmatic. Mm. You know, they want to have an impact on as wide a field as possible, too. Right. Um, and I think that's what, you know, I, I actually find publishing 
in those journals sometimes more rewarding because I think you're you know that you're having a, the impact that you want. Um, yeah. You know, pu- publishing in your own discipline specific, you know, I'm, I'm not picking on job. I don't mean to do that. But, no. you know, that's that might be good for your career mm-hmm. if you're a behavior analyst. Yeah. And I get that there's a time and place where that has to happen. The question is whether it's having the impact that you want your career to have. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about if I had published. All of my Tourette, first of all, I wouldn't have published all of my Tourette work because I wouldn't have done half the studies if I were just trying to publish in Java. Um, mm-hmm. Because I just know from the beginning that Java wouldn't publish half of those the studies that I've run. Um, mm. And that's fine. Um, but I, I think that, you know, the work I have done wouldn't have had the impact in as broad of a way if, I, if that had been my goal, which is mm-hmm. to, to get an article published in Java. Mm-hmm. Where I mean, I've I've often and I don't make me to sound like this is my work alone because it surely isn't. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. definitely not. Um, but I think about you know, my friends and I have talked about this. My colleagues and I have talked about this. It's like wow, you know, the the impact we've had for this small group of people with Tourette's across the world has really been pretty impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, and there aren't. Often, I don't think a lot of us ever thought that we could have the kind of impact in that world that we thought that we ended up having. Um, and a lot of that's because, you know, we we sort of set our own career norms aside and mm-hmm. and approached this from the perspective of how can we have the biggest impact on the population that we're trying to serve, not mm-hmm. on our careers per se. If that makes sense. No, that that, that totally makes sense. Um, and, and, you know, and I have no doubt that I was influenced heavily by Pat. Um, you know, Pat never, for me, uh, bought into the, you know, the only paper worth having is a Java paper. Mm-hmm. Um, that I never got that message from Pat. It was, again, mm-hmm. how can you impact the people you're trying to serve? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and so I, I credit him a lot for instilling that mentality in me. Absolutely, and and it, and it really makes a lot of sense. I mean, for for a disorder that is that where me, the medical field is is likely going to be your sort of the first point of contact for a family or for an individual, you want to make sure that point of contact is aware of every sort of possible option out there. Right, and the likelihood of a of a medical doctor, you know, opening up Java or behavior interventions or or behavior modification, or you know, even behavior analysis and practice is 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 pretty slim, um, right? You know, um, in, in, unless you know they happen to be married to a behavior analyst or something, or have a kid who's a behavior analyst and pick up the magazine and go, "Hey, didn't know about that." So it makes a lot of sense to 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 kind of go that route. And and would you say that? And, and I guess that that's probably the primary reason then that the doctors are are now recommending this is because it was in one of their own journals, no? I think that's a big part of it. I mean, I think we have to keep in mind, most behavior analysts probably don't pick up the latest copy of Java and read it cover to cover. Right. You know, they, 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 what they get is kind of what is happening in the field, what might be hot. If there's a particular area that they're looking for, they might pick up the, the journal and skim through it to see if there's something that you know, trips their fancy. But, mm. um, you know, I think what ends up happening, even the physicians are not picking up the latest copy of JAMA and reading it, you know, cover to cover most sure. likely 
but what sure. they're hearing are what the norms are uh, in their mm. field. And what's what was really interesting for the Tourette's um, piece, you know, I said there was like a three to four year lag between when the journal came out and um, you know when it really started to hit. And what mm. ended up happening in the meantime was a lot of um, groups around different parts of the world ended up publishing treatment guidelines for treatment treating Tourette's. So mm. I think in you know the early teens, maybe 2011, 2012, the European guidelines for the treatment of Tourette's came out. And thanks to that JAMA article, um, using the methods that we used, that that article really helped solidify the recommendation from the European guidelines mm. that behavior therapy should be a first-line treatment. And then the um, American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry published their guidelines a little bit later. The Canadian guidelines came out, and more most recently, the American Academy of Neurology guidelines came out, and all of those are the things that help guide practice. So mm-hmm. that that JAMA article gave rise to these these reviews of what treatment recommendations should be, and that's what the practitioners will pay attention to when they see the best practice guidelines put out there. You know, then they're going to to do what the best practices are. Gotcha. So the the the. Um... The intervention um, is called the CBIT, so Comprehensive Behavioral Intervention for Ticks. Is that what it is? I guess. Yep. Or? Yep. CBIT. So, so what 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 does what does CBIT entail? Can you break that down for us? Sure. It's a multi-component uh, treatment. Um, the The two primary components are habit reversal therapy, which I'll explain in a little bit, and the the functional intervention piece. Um, in addition to those two main pieces, we have psychoeducation, teaching families and kids about Tourette's and, and what it mm. means. We have a relaxation training component uh, because we recognize that stress can make ticks harder just generally to control and manage. Uh, and then we have a reinforcement piece where we have a, a reinforcement program set up to reward compliance mm. with the therapeutic techniques. Mm. Um, the two main pieces, though, are habit reversal therapy and uh, function-based interventions. Uh, mm-hmm. So habit reversal therapy really involves three primary techniques. Um, and what we do is we first we start by ha- listing all of the ticks that the child might have, and mm-hmm. we rank them from most distressing to least distressing. And as mm-hmm. we go through therapy, we treat one tick at a time, starting with the most distressing tick. We do habit mm-hmm. reversal for that tick, and once that tick starts to get a little better than we do habit reversal for the next tick and so mm. on. Usually we treat about one tick a week. That's how fast it works. You know, we can get okay. usually get one tick under control within about a week. It may not be completely gone, but it, it's, it's usually substantially reduced. Um, sometimes it takes a few weeks. Sometimes it just doesn't work. Um, but generally it's about once a week. And when we do habit reversal with a tick, what we're doing is uh, a series of exercises. The first thing we do is try to teach the child to be more aware of when the tick's happening. We go through a whole mm. process of techniques that we do. We have them describe the tick in great detail. Then we have them practice with us in session, uh, basically um, having them tell us by raising a finger every time that they do the tick or that they notice that they're doing the tick. If they mm. catch it, we say, good job. If they miss it, so they tick and they don't raise their finger, we say, oh, wait, there was a tick. And we keep practicing with that immediate feedback until the Mm. child is getting really good at telling us in real time when the tick is about to happen. Mm. And then we push them a little bit more and we tell them to start telling us as soon as they notice the urge to tick. So we're trying to get them to to shape them to to 
notice before the tick even happens when those premonitory mm-hmm. urge experiences mm-hmm. are happening. And we get good at that. Once the child is can, can tell us when the urge to tick is there, we're in good shape. And we move on to the next piece, which is called competing response training. In competing response training, what we try to do is teach them a behavior that they can do whenever they feel the urge to tick or actually start to do the tick. And they do this behavior that physically prevents the tick from happening or makes the tick more difficult to do. Um, Mm. And we ask them to do that competing behavior for a minute or until the urge goes away, whichever lasts longer. And we have them practice that in session. So we might sit and play games with the kid for 20 minutes. And we say, every time Mm. you feel the urge to tick or you start to do the tick, uh, do this competing response instead. And, you know, if they if they're talking to us and they do the tick, but they forget the competing exercise, we stop and we say, OK, don't forget to do your exercise. Let's practice now. If they catch the, the tick and do the competing response correctly, we praise them for it. We practice and practice and practice until they get really good at it in session. And then we send them home with the instructions of whenever you feel the urge to tick or start to do the tick, go to this competing response right away and do it for a minute or until the urge goes away. And that's their homework between session. And the last piece of habit reversal is where we have a social support person, usually a parent, just do two things for us. We ask them to praise the child if they see the child do the competing response correctly. And we have them prompt the child if they see the child tick but not use the competing response. And mm. we have them practice that throughout the week. Usually within a week, the ticks have started to decrease dramatically just as a result of, of the habit reversal piece. Mm-hmm. So that's habit reversal. Before you, before you go on to the yeah. second half, just a couple of questions. Um, yeah. First, so I, 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 it's interesting the first point about kind of doing it tick by tick. I was sort of just presumed it would have been, you know, sort of the all or nothing, but that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, it's, there's a range, but is there sort of a, a an average number of number of different types of ticks an individual might have? Oh, it can be anywhere from one to thirty. Oh wow! So that many, okay. Yeah, I mean, and so you'd just, be tre- you'd be treating each of those thirty ticks one by one. Not necessarily. Um, we'll treat all the ones that are bothering the child. Ah, there we go. It, okay. the, you know, we let the child, you know, the, the social validity of the treatment, right? So which ones mm. are the the child distressed by, and, right, and those that right. are distressing or interfering, those are the ones we'll focus on. That makes sense. So it's so it's possible that someone could have ticks that aren't all that bothersome, and there's not really a need to do anything about them. Exactly. Okay. And then in terms of what, what are some examples, this, cause this might, uh, what are some examples of, of what behaviors could compete with a tick? Sure. So um, if you think of, let's say a neck jerking tick where your neck jerks uh, quickly back and to the right mm. and you're doing that, a competing response, a common competing response would be gently uh, drop your chin down slightly and gently tense the side of your neck. If you're doing that, mm. you can't jerk your head back and to the right unless you stop doing the competing behavior. Ah, gotcha. If you have an arm jerking tick where your arm shoots out to the right, competing response might be to hold your elbow into your side and hold that you know position. If you have a mouth stretching tick, your competing response might be gently clench your teeth together and purse your lips. If you have a nose, like a kind of a nose twitching tick, the competing response might be to pull your upper lip down. It's harder okay. to do it. So, oh. yeah. So, so, sorry. So, with those, I'm. 
I'm just thinking. I'm thinking of say the you know clenching your teeth and pursing your lip or holding your elbow in. What what am I missing here? Because because now I'm just doing two other behaviors that look equally odd. <laughs> well, to, to, to to the world, but but I'm not but I'm not really really relieving my tick. So yeah, that's a good point. When we give them competing responses, we don't actually assign them. What we do is have them come up with something that they think will work. And we mm. give them a couple rules that we teach them rules, actually. The first rule is that the competing behavior that they do should uh, make the tick impossible to do or more mm. difficult to do, right? Mm. So we're, we're, mo- we're modifying response effort there. Mm. That's number one. The second thing is the competing response should be less noticeable than the tick itself. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the criteria that we choose for using a good competing response is if you're doing a competing response right, the public should yep. probably not know what you're doing. It mm. should be very subtle and, and a lot less subtle than the tick itself. And gotcha. then the third rule is that you have to be able to do that competing response for a minute or until the urge goes away, no matter where you're at. Um, so we teach them those three rules to so to get at your point of of uh, uh, you know the noticeability of the competing response. We actually work with that to make sure it's not too noticeable. The second secret word is habit. Okay, that makes sense, and I like I like the idea of 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 the you know the child selecting those responses versus us trying to pick them for them. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's good. So that, that, that explains those pieces. So now, what's so what's the other side? What's the functional piece? Sure. So the functional piece is the re- is it stems from the recognition that the ticks are actually highly impacted by environmental factors. And I don't mean like pollution. I mean like you know, just day-to-day activities or stimuli in the environment. You know, there's a lot of research out there now that shows how sensitive ticks are to things that go on in the environment. There's okay. some evidence out there that attention that gets paid to ticks or escape from demanding tasks uh, contingent on ticks can actually reinforce tick occurrence. Um, we know that, for example, talking about ticks can make ticks worse in some kids. Watching other kids' ticks. Other kids' tick can make ticks worse. We know Mm. that stressful events can make ticks worse. We know that watching TV can make ticks worse. I mean, and it's different for every kid. So Mm. what the recognition is that there are factors that go on in a child's day-to-day life that will impact that child's ticks in a unique way. And there are reactions to that child's ticks that will impact that child's ticks in a unique way. And Mm. boy, that doesn't that sound a lot like behavior analysis. Um, yes. And so what we do is we adopt um, this functional assessment interview methodology where we interview parents and children about factors that exacerbate their tics, um, antecedent factors. And in each of those antecedent conditions that are found to exacerbate their tics, we look for consequences that are potentially relevant, you know, reactions to tics, um, uh, escape from demanding tasks because of tics. And what we do after we do this functional assessment interview is develop a plan um, based on the results of that interview for the family to implement changes in their environment, uh, uh, antecedents that they can maybe avoid or restructure that make the kids' ticks less likely to happen, mm. um, work with family members who might or teachers who might normally be reacting to ticks so we can change their reactions to the ticks to make the ticks less likely to happen. So it's just good old-fashioned behavior analysis, basically. Mm. Um, and, and so we add that into the habit reversal piece as well. So those are our two primary treatment components that we use, um, in CBIT. 
And so have there been any kind of, um, you know, I guess sort of like component analysis or whatnot or something similar to sort of like could, could habit reversal training alone solve the problem or do you really need both? Um, well, I mean, we, we know that habit reversal training has a huge impact on ticks because that's it was all habit reversal until CBIT came along. Um, and so we know that habit reversal alone is effective. What we don't know is whether the function-based intervention piece adds anything to it. Um, right. And that's a good question. I think it, regardless, the reason we actually put the function-based stuff in is because mm. we knew that that was a piece habit reversal wasn't addressing. Right. Um, and so how important it actually is, in, you know, do we get a 5%, 10%, 15% lift in efficacy over HRT? I don't know. Um, mm. And it, it, from an experimental standpoint, it's probably worth asking that question. Um, you know, but, but from a pragmatic standpoint in the families, we know that there are things that happen in their environment that exacerbate and trigger the ticks. And yeah. just from a good therapeutic standpoint, we should be doing, we should be addressing those things. Um, but the component analyses on CBIT have not been done. Um, there have been component analyses done on habit reversal to look at what the most effective components of habit reversal are, awareness training, competing response training, and so on. And what the, the data tell us is that really, you know, at least awareness training and competing response training are really essential parts of habit reversal working. Social support, it's not as clear for at least for adults. It may not matter so much, but for kids, we think it's still pretty important. Um, you know, but the, the function-based intervention stuff that has not been pulled out as a separate component analysis. Hmm. I, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, and, and, and it, it certainly can't hurt, I don't think to sort of, you know, remove stressors and, um, you know, other things, because, you know, it sounds like a lot of those sorts of, you know, potential sort of, uh, you know, triggers or antecedents to, uh, to ticks are, are are things that would be good to sort of reduce and deal with sort of anyway. I mean, if, if you can if you can make someone, you know, more relaxed and less stressed over time, you know, it probably doesn't hurt things, you know, to 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 have that piece. Correct. Um okay, so we've got we've got this this nice uh piece. Do do uh so who who's doing CBIT? Is it just like I, I read in, in, in your paper, a couple of your papers about sort of there's, you know, uh, these sort of Tourette, uh, you know, I forget what the exact term was, but essentially sort of societies or treatment sort of clinics sort of around the world now that are that are kind of kind of doing some of this work. And, and, and I know you've done I know there's you did that cultural paper on sort of cultural uh, sort of. Uh, um, uh, differences in kind of how people react to ticks based on some of those areas. The, but the, the, do sort of regular old BCBAs out there are, are they are they doing this kind of treatment or is it or is it more kind of a specialized thing? You know, what, we've really taken the approach of the we the treatment sounds easy, but it's actually a little bit complicated to implement. Mm. Um, and I actually think behavior analysts are really well positioned to do this because they understand the theory behind it so well. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot, I mean, this comes out of their world, but we've not been restrictive on what disciplines that we train to do this. Mm -hmm. um, we say, if you're licensed to practice in your discipline, and this is within your scope of practice and you want to learn this, we'll teach you. Mm -hmm. um, so the way people get trained in this uh, mm -hmm. is the Tourette Association of America operates something called the Behavior Therapy Institute. 
Um, it's mm. a Tourette Associate or Tourette Syndrome Behavior Therapy Institute. And what it is is a two-day intensive training where we bring you in, we give you a full mm. day of lecture about the background on this, what the treatment is, what Tourette's is. And then the next day we have you practice role-playing key elements of the procedure. And then we set you up with three consultation calls with one of the trainers that mm. help lead you through your first case. And if you mm. complete those and you know, it seems to us that you're doing a, a good job in what you're, what you're doing and you understand the protocol, then you know, they put you on the Tourette Association CBIT referral list. Um, so th that's how we've been doing it. And we've trained um, a lot of uh, social workers. We've trained mm -hmm. a lot of clinical psychologists, counseling psychologists, occupational therapists. Every meeting we have a few behavior analysts, BCBAs come in mm -hmm. who get trained. And we think it's great. I mean, I wish we could get more behavior analysts to do it uh, because this is really their technology. And, uh, yeah. you know, but again, I and part of the reason I, I, I enjoy coming on here is because I think it's important that you know, behavior analysts get outside of their, their, what has now become, I guess, I shouldn't say it's always been this, what has now become their comfort zone of, of individuals with autism and, and other developmental disabilities, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because we have so much to offer. Um, and it, I just, it makes me sad that we don't, we don't expand our reach more than we, we already have. Uh, because I do think we have uh, some some strong skills and abilities to to impact the lives of those around us. Uh, I totally agree, and 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 I hope folks listening um, uh, will take that to heart and and go check out the the association. Is this something that's kind of an ongoing kind of training that's happening? And do you have sort of regular trainings, or how's how's that go? Obviously, the pandemic has put a a, a little bit of a hitch in our in our sure. plans but yep. um you know until then uh, until the pandemic started uh we were having a training you know once probably every two or three months and we we yep. hold it hold it to no more than 30 at a time um mm. uh, you know just to keep the numbers down to keep the, our student to staff ratio in these trainings uh mm -hmm. pretty close i think it's usually like eight to one eight students for every trainer mm. um uh, but we've had one live training since the pandemic started, and hopefully in the next few months, you know, if the pandemic subsides a little bit, we'll start having a few more regular ones as people learn to adjust to the pandemic. Gotcha. And is it just uh, the the American Association that's doing this this work? Or oh no, no, it's it's all over the place now. But we we the treatment that we developed, the CBIT protocol, was actually turned into a book. It was turned into a manual um, mm. that was published by Oxford University Press. And that has been translated into a number of different languages now. I think there's a Japanese version. There's a Korean version. Wow. There's a, I think there's a Russian version that was just recently approved. There's a Norwegian version. I think there's a Swedish version. Um, and, there, you know, it's really, this research on, on CBIT has really taken off across the world now. I know there was hmm. a study that just came out of Japan. There's been one out of, I believe, Norway. or no, Sweden. There's been one out of Italy. Um, there are a number of people in the UK who do this work. Um, in Germany, it's been happening. So there, it's really kind of taken off internationally, which has been exciting to see. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, just a little bit on habit reversal training. So I've, I've, I mean, I think every behavior analyst has, by now should have heard of habit reversal training. A lot of us may not have had any experience, kind of implementing it. It, it 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 you you said it was developed by Azrin and and uh 
and, and none in the in the seventy three. Was it developed for Tourette's? Is that what you said? It the first paper, the Ezra Nunn seventy three paper, really was primarily it had a few different patients, but primarily people with motor tics, and mm-hmm. I think maybe some vocal tics. Because now, I I, be, I believe I've heard it, it, it's used for a lot of other things now, isn't that right? Yeah. So very soon after um, they published that first paper in nineteen seventy three, uh, they started applying it to almost everything habitual. So right. it had been used to treat stuttering. It's been mm. used, which is a whole interesting part of behavior therapy that doesn't get much much play anymore. But there was mm. a, a really good a bunch of evidence on using uh, what he called, what Azra called, regulated breathing to treat stuttering. Mm. That was it, mm. basically stu- habit reversal for stuttering. He called regulated breathing. Um, really powerful evidence behind that. Um he used it to treat uh, trichotillomania or chronic hair pulling, skin right. picking, nail biting, right. thumb sucking, bruxism, um, named the habitual behavior. And, and he went after it with hab reversal with, with a lot of success, actually. And, and I feel like, has it also been used for things like like cigarette smoking? I believe there are... There might be one or two studies that mm. um, have looked at that. More interestingly, I've, I've I haven't seen the study, but I've had people talk to me about and wonder whether it could be used for things like uh, bulimia, um, mm. where there are a lot of habitual behaviors that go into yeah. bulimia and other eating disorders, um, which is is kind of a curious thing. Um, so I think you know the, the technology is really he he really aptly named it habit reversal. It's really built yeah. to uh, increase awareness of these kind of ongoing behavior patterns that we don't often consciously think about and then do something to disrupt them um, and disrupt that kind of underlying neural circuitry that drives habitual behavior. So it's it's an interesting um, interesting treatment. Simple sounding, but a lot harder to do than I think people imagine. Well, and I agree. I think he did a great job naming it. I mean, he easily could have thrown in some, some you know, really annoying sort of technical jargon, and it, it might not have gone anywhere. But I think the, the, the title of the intervention is is really is really compelling. I tell you what, you know, he he honestly, I've met, I had the opportunity before he passed away to meet Dr. Azrin a few times. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful person, um, mm. and. Uh, he, I, I, he's gotten accolades for sure in the behavior analysis and behavior therapy world. But mm. when you look at everything the man's done, he just seriously deserves a lot more credit for the formation of applied behavior analysis and for the formation of behavior therapy and CBT as a field um, mm. than he really does. Um, he, I think that, that what happened was he never went deep on any one particular clinical problem. He went wide. Mm. Um, mm. And he he treated so many different things. Um, if you look at his record, it's just an amazing, amazing uh, record of what he was, you know, what he dealt with, mm. and what he what he was involved with in the early days of behavior therapy. Time That's out, really... token economies, mm, toilet right. training, habit reversal, stuttering treatment, go on and on and on. Yeah. That's really awesome. Um so the other the other question so question I have just about sort of so you did that um you did that uh, RCT in 2010 um 
then you you recently had uh, published a study. I guess it was just uh, oh, this this year. This year, um, yeah, uh, around sort of long term follow up, and, and and this one I I really love. I, I uh, because just because of of I, I think there's so little research in in in, in our field uh, that looks at you know kind of long term sustainable outcomes of our interventions. We we put in these really, you know, elegant, beautiful studies quite often, and then we'll do, you know, maybe a month or three months, or if we're really lucky, sort of six months follow up. But you know, no one really wants, you know, from a sort of consumer perspective, I, I don't think many people want a treatment out there that only works for three months, right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, not to say that they don't work longer, but no one kind of does that measuring. I, I did a, a, a recent interview actually just uh, a couple of days ago um, with uh, my mentor from from when I did my master's degree, uh, Dr. Um, uh, Joe Lucician, who does work in kind of family-centered PBS, so completely different realm. But what he does do, which not many other folks have done sort of in in the in my experiences, he does multi-year follow-up and so he was about to, he, he he had a i think in 2007 he published a seven-year long-term um you know longitudinal sort of measure and and he was talking to me about uh, trying to get a hold of a family to go collect a 10-year data point um uh and again showing you know that the you know the inter the the results that sort of you know, during intervention 10 years ago had sustained um, and, you know, really showing that, you know, these are interventions that are, you know, survivable. Um, so uh, it, it's not something we see a lot of. And, 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 and the excuse I usually hear, because I've asked sort of folks, why, why don't you do more, you know, sort of long-term research? And, and they say, well, we don't, you know, we, we don't have you know, we don't have the data. Um, uh, we can't get the data, or it's hard. It's hard to find. Um, now, it, but it sounds like just from reading this story that this study, sorry, uh, that, that that would that's true. <laughs> it is because uh, it sounds like it took you quite a long time to kind of uh, you know get all these folks together and and kind of get that information again. So tell me a little bit about sort of I guess you know why you decided to do this study. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and sort of that process and then, and then kind of what you came up with. The third secret word is Azrin, A-Z-R-I-N. Sure. So one of the things, you know, we've been trying to do in our in behavior therapy is we knew from the very beginning that we were facing an uphill climb to get behavior therapy as an accepted treatment in the medical community. Um, mm. One, because a lot of folks didn't even know about it. And two is because when those in the medical community had heard about it, they didn't take it very seriously. They, mm. they talked about a lot of concerns about it. They, they talked about a lot of potential negative effects that behavior therapy could have. And they talked a lot about the limitations of data. And mm. there were definitely limitations of data. Sure. One of the big limitations of data was how durable is the treatment? Mm -hmm. Is is behavior therapy like a parlor trick that as soon as the therapist goes away, it, it doesn't stick around? Which, yes. you know, if you understand this is a purely neurological disorder and you don't understand that behavior therapy indeed can change brain functioning, in fact, does right. change brain functioning, right? Then, then of course, that's a legitimate question. You know, does, mm -hmm. does behavior therapy last? And so one of the things we wanted to do was 
really look at does behavior therapy have a long-term impact on these kids? And so what we did is collect this, uh, what it was 11-year follow-up data. And it took a few years to get, get mm-hmm. it because it's not easy to get those data from people mm-hmm. who were now adults when they were children 10, 11 mm-hmm. years ago. Um, we wanted to find out what happened to these kids. And we found about 65% of the kids from the original study and we compared them. Uh, we, we wanted to see how much their ticks had changed from when they were, you know, at first in the study to where they were at now. And we compared them by whether or not they had responded to CBIT or not, um, and whether they had responded to the initial uh, control condition or not. And what we found is, long story short, all the kids who were in the study got better over time. And we always knew that about Tourette's. We know that for a lot of kids with Tourette's, as they get older into adulthood, their tics tend to, to get less severe over time. Mm-hmm. And this study showed that. But what's also interesting is that if kids had gotten better from CBIT when they were children, 11 years mm-hmm. earlier, mm-hmm. they were in much better shape than any of the other kids in the study. So mm. they were in better shape than the kids who had not responded to CBIT initially. They were in better shape than the kids who had gotten supportive therapy and gotten better from supportive therapy initially. Mm. They were better than better off than the kids who had never responded to supportive therapy. Everybody was a little bit better, but the kids who got behavior therapy were were significantly better than the other groups. And so really what this told us was that if you get behave, successful behavior therapy uh, when you're a kid, it has an impact on your tics for the rest of your life, or at least mm. eleven years later. Um, so it gets you better, and it gets you it, it makes you stay better quicker um, mm. than 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 any other treatment. And that's a pretty profound um, finding, I think, mm-hmm. from the from for behavior therapy for any uh, condition. There aren't many studies yeah. out there that show durability over a decade of behavior therapy. Um, so it was a pretty powerful finding, and it really speaks to you know, the, the durability of behavioral technologies as a way to, to change symptoms permanently. Now, wh- why do you think that was? Like, do you think that was because, you know, you're doing treatment on really young kids and young kids tend to sort of, you know, uh, you know, absorb some of these skills and, 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 and you know, easier because of, the, you know, the developing brain and so on and so forth? Or, or is it, is it just because, you know, when you become an adult, you're, 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 you know, maybe you're more mature or you're just, you know, you're, 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 it's easier for you to sort of control your emotions. Like what do you, what do you think it was that, that makes that makes that work? Well, I think, I mean, there's, it's an important thing to keep in mind. So I think the question of why do kids ticks just get better in general is mm. kind of intimately linked to why behavior therapy at a younger age might make sense and might have yeah. more durable results. So there's yeah. some belief that you remember I told you about the basal ganglia and how it's like yes. the inhib- inhibition system. Yes. But all the inhibition, I'm going to get non-behavior analytic for a little bit, but all the mm. inhibition that happens at the basal ganglia is out of our awareness. It's not like anything we're intentionally trying to do. When we intentionally try to stop ourselves from doing something, that's activating a different part of the brain. It's a mm. part of the brain from the prefrontal cortex down into the basal ganglia. Think of it as mm. an emergency break for your basal ganglia. If your basal mm. ganglia is just doing things and letting movements through and you want to stop it, 
you activate your prefrontal cortex. In other words, you become aware of what you're wanting to do and you send a signal down and say, stop doing what you're doing. And you kind of stop everything. Hmm. That pathway from the prefrontal cortex down into the basal ganglia, that emergency break, if you will, that hmm. develops more slowly. Oh, and that develops as we become adults. So if hmm. you think about it, like why do you, why are adolescents so impulsive and, and eventually they, they kind of gain control over themselves? That happens as that pathway develops, right? Which mm. probably also explains why ticks diminish over time. People have more intentional control over their own behavior as they get older, mm. right? Yeah, it what's, makes sense. What's also interesting is that there's some strong belief that what happens in habit reversal and in behavior therapy for ticks is that it strengthens that pathway. Mm. So that same exact pathway is what actually is changing in the brain as behavior therapy. Uh, becomes effective, right? So if you think right. about what we might be doing, as kids' pathways are developing, they're learning the skills that help them develop that pathway even better and even faster. So mm -hmm. as they start to age and that pathway becomes more formed, they also have the skills to use that pathway more effectively. And yeah. it becomes concretized, if you will, into their brain. Um, yeah. that's, the, that's my theory. Um, whether that's true or not, that's that's, <laughs> that's research. Now that that makes a lot of sense. So, kind of before we wrap up here a bit, I just want to go back. You mentioned you did uh, you did two RCDs. You did one with kids and one with adults. What happened with the adult one? Sure, uh, same study, pretty much, but slightly less effective results. The treatment mm -hmm. still worked better than the supportive therapy control, but um, the response rate was probably about. 10 to 15 percent lower mm, so not mm. a kid, adults didn't not as many adults got better as did kids mm. which again if you take the theory that that pathway that i talked about is already pretty established in adults you're not going to get mm -hmm. as much change yeah no that makes sense i was just curious if there if sort of any of those results kind of matched up a bit with your theory as well um that's really cool. So, uh, so I, I think some some take home messages here is you know is Tourette's and other things like stuttering and uh, that you mentioned as well, and 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 some of these other sorts of um, um, behaviors that we might have thought in the past were completely involuntary and and nothing we could do about them um, are, are definitely treatable and definitely treatable by us, and and that there are you know uh, there there is training available for folks uh, if if they want to kind of keep going forward. What um, what kinds of things are you working on these days in Tourette's? I mean, with with Tourette's, I know we can look at um, 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 you know, we can. Look, I mean, there doesn't seem there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of different things we can look at here uh, beyond kind of kind of what you've done already. So what 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 are you, what are you working on now, or what, what what's the research like pointing looking for these days? Yeah. So what we're really we're focusing on a couple things. One is how can we use from from a treatment development standpoint, how can we use um, contingency management more effectively to get more out of our treatment? Um, mm. So we're looking at whether or not we can set up very specific um, uh, schedules of reinforcement to help kids practice to use their competing response more effectively. Mm. And if doing that, gotcha. we'll actually kind of juice the treatment's outcomes a little bit more. So that's one thing we're looking at. Cool. A second thing we're looking at is um, we've, you know, after the treatment was originally tested, we really moved into more of a dissemination model. How do we get this out to people who need it? 
And so yeah. one of the things we did is we developed and tested an online self-help version of this called Tick Helper. Mm. So like mm. if you go to www.tickhelper.com, you'll see an online self-administered version of, of CBIT. And it has cool. some, you know, it's not as good as face-to-face, but it has some, sure. some, uh, you know, some, some efficacy. Um, and it's meant to be, uh, you know, an affordable option for people who can't otherwise access therapists. Um, we've also done a few studies looking at whether you can successfully deliver this on, um, uh, telemedicine networks, uh, Mm. and, you know, had some good results there. Uh, what we've really been focusing on more recently though, is to, uh, deal with our training problem. Um, you Mm. know, how do, how do we train therapists? So we actually just received Mm -hmm. a a multi-year grant from the NIMH, to develop what we are calling CBIT Trainer, which is an online um, therapist training program uh, mm. to, to train therapists effectively uh, in CBIT. So that's what we're just getting started in that project right now. So hopefully in a couple of years, we'll have that done and tested and that'll be available to the community as well. Oh, that's really cool. That was actually going to be my last question was, you know, are, are you going to have you know, training opportunities beyond folks having to travel down to, you know, your institute and do that training, because I'm sure it would be great to sort of, you know, get to get to the masses uh, online. So yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, just to put that out there, you know, the way we do a lot of these trainings is if, if you know, if you have a clinic or you're in a clinic where you want to have a training, um, mm. you can actually contact the Tread Association and offer to host a behavior therapy institute, and the, oh. the institute will come to you. Um, so we don't expect, um, you know, everybody to fly to one, to my, my clinic, for example. Um, sure. so for example, if you had a clinic in, I'm just going to make it up Dallas and you yep. said, Hey, we have five behavior analysts here who we'd like to get trained and see, but, you know, contact the Tread Association and say, Hey, we'd be willing to host a behavior therapy Institute down here. Um, mm-hmm. and what the Tread Association would do would be put out a call for anyone, you know, within a few hundred miles of Dallas who want to be trained to come up for the yeah. the weekend and, and do it at that site. So that's often how we do these Perfect. Things. Cool. Okay, that's a great option because I'm sure some folks would definitely be interested in that. Right on. Well, that's really neat. I, 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 I learned a lot about Tourette's today and, and, and just sort of the approaches that are available and, and uh, you know, just really, really impressed with, um, you know, uh, uh, the work you've done to, to, to really get this out to the mainstream, um, uh, especially for, you know, just sort of, a, you know, it's a relatively high percentage of in, in terms of prevalence. And, um, you know, I think I think a lot of folks would really benefit from this. So uh, really, really neat stuff. Any sort of uh, sort of last remarks you'd like to kind of give to the listeners? No, I would just thank everyone for listening. And, and you know, if you're a behavior analyst uh, thinking about where you want your career to go, I would really encourage you to to think outside the box a little bit and get into mm. other areas. There's a huge demand for services, our services out there. Um, mm. And I would encourage you to 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 get acquainted with those areas and, and really kind of make them your own. Um, the world needs behavior analysis. And uh and you know Skinner talked about that a lot in his in mm-hmm. his in his works about how behavior analysis is most of the problems of humanity are problems of human behavior and they Mm -hmm. need people who understand the science of behavior to solve them. So I would encourage you to to expand your reach and and get out and do that. Uh, Great message. Great message. Thanks so much, Doug, for, for being on the podcast. Thank you.